in this study, they put actually a mixed gender group of people together, men and women together, ostensibly to decide a child custody case. And they deliberately chose this topic because it's actually quite female stereotyped. And they gave the group all sorts of information about the family concerned. But they gave a couple of individual members a piece of information that no one else had. When that information was introduced by a man, it was six times more likely to be used in the group's deliberations than when it was introduced by a woman. Six times more. That's how much harder it is for a woman to influence a group. Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast, formerly known as Leaders with Babies podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I am the CEO and founder of the social enterprise Leaders Plus and your host for today. I've set up this podcast and our award-winning Leaders Plus Fellowship program because I want to give you access to inspiration and practical support so you can continue to progress your leadership career in a way that works for you whilst enjoying your young children. I really think that no one should have to choose between doing what they love at work and enjoying the people that they love, their kids, most of the time anyways. Today's guest as a kickoff of the new series is the fantastic Mary Ann Seacard. She is such a hero of mine and she's written a really intriguing book which my book club absolutely loved and I've just added it to the reading list of the fellowship. So if any fellows are listening then um, yeah, have a look at that reading list and have a look at that book. It's called The Authority Gap. And her, I guess her her thinking is all about why men and women are seen as having different levels of authority. Why is it that you can say the exact same thing and it's being received very differently? And how, I guess, what's the research and the evidence for this reality? And then how do you deal with that in day-to-day life without letting it get you down? And how do you change it? Which I think is the most important question. If you are interested in continuing conversations around this topic, please feel free to comment and share on social media. It's at leaders underscore plus on Twitter, Instagram or LinkedIn. And I'd love to hear your feedback on this episode and any thoughts that you might have. Also, if you want to be kept in the loop of what we are doing, then head over to leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter our applications to the fellowship program which is our flagship program to support parents to continue to progress their career even if they work in an unideal environment unfortunately that's closed now but we'll open it again in the future as in (laughs) next year but in the meantime i think this newsletter has access to some free events and hopefully some good areas of support and also if you go to the website listplus.org.uk you can register interest for the next fellowship program and we've got plenty of part sponsor places should this be what you need so i also i should say i've really with this episode i've really lived the whole leader with baby challenge so i've got three kids and my youngest was brought home from nursery early by someone who shall not be named and basically he heard me through the door and he just screamed his head off i think we can We've, we've been able to edit it out mostly, but thank you if you're bearing with me with, with some of that background noise. I'm sure you all know what it's like. Enjoy today's conversation. A very warm welcome, Mary Ann Seacart, to the podcast. I am absolutely thrilled 
to interview you, especially because I've loved your book so much when we read it as part of our book club. Why don't we start with you introducing yourself, who's in your family and what you do for work? Okay, thank you. Great pleasure to be on. My name's Marianne Seacart and I've written a book called The Authority Gap, why we still take women less seriously than men and what we can do about it. I Oh, I'll do my family first. So I've been married for, gosh, nearly 35 years and I have a 30-year-old daughter and a 28-year-old daughter. One of them is a private tutor and writer and the other is an architect now living in Denmark, Copenhagen. And I worked full time, you know, while my even when my children were small. In fact, I had so little maternity leave. I had 12 weeks maternity leave for each child. And that started ticking from the day I left work, not from when they were born. So I worked up until a week before each of them was due, feeling completely exhausted and having to drag myself all the way across London to the Times, which is in Wapping. And I just felt so exhausted. I, I remember at the end of each day in Wapping, I used to think, oh, I wish I could just teleport myself home because I'm so tired. In those days, there was no such thing as flexible working or remote working. So yeah, I tried to campaign for that all the way through my time at the Times. And I used by the last few years, I managed to negotiate to get August working from home But I promised to work all the way through August when all my colleagues wanted to be on holiday. But the quid pro quo was I'd be able to do it from home because that's where my children were. And they said yes to that for about three or four years. And then the managing editor said, actually, it just makes your colleagues too resentful. Uh, We want you in the office every day. So I said, right, I'm leaving. And I did. Oh, wow. Good for you. It sounds like that was a really, it's obviously a very tough time. And I imagine also quite a male dominated environment where you worked at the time. And what are you doing now, Marianne? Well, I've spent most of my life as a journalist and a broadcaster, nearly 20 years at the Times, writing columns mainly about politics. But I now, well, I left the Times because they were so inflexible about my working patterns, (laughs) one reason I left. And I'm now what they call a portfolio woman. So I sit on various boards and uh, I've written this book. I'm going to be writing another I make the odd radio programme and I am a visiting professor at King's College London. Mm, Wonderful. And why did you come up with the idea of writing the book? Was there a trigger moment? I guess the trigger moments probably started when I was about two or three. (laughs) When I first became aware of the fact that it was basically lower status to be a girl than a boy and that boys just got more in the world than girls did. And I couldn't bear being patronized, being underestimated, having my views ignored, you know, as I grew up. And you get that a lot. You get it a lot as an adult woman, but I noticed it as a girl as well. So it's something, I suppose, that has always annoyed me. I guess I had to prove myself in a more male stereotyped world before I could write a book like this. So I started my career as a business journalist and then I became a political journalist. And these are all very male domains. And I think if I hadn't done that, this book wouldn't have been taken seriously by men. I think it probably has been taken seriously by men, or at least I hope it has. It's certainly been reviewed by men, recommended by men. I'm not sure that would have been the case if I hadn't already proved myself in their world. Mm. But I had always been interested in women's and feminist issues. And I helped to set up an organization called Women in Journalism about 20 years ago. There wasn't one for, for women in journalism. And so, of course, the my fellow male journalists all called it whinge. <laughs> but, yeah, so I've always done this sort of thing on the side. But when it came to writing a book, I 
had some ideas about books I wanted to write about politics, but I also had this idea. And I just thought, do you know, I feel much more strongly about this than I do about the political books. So I've been writing it with my heart as well as my head. That's mm. it. I'm very glad that you did write it. I really enjoyed it. So obviously, like we said before, we started recording. Someone like me is a very easy, this book is a very easy sell to. I lapped it up and yeah, everything that you write makes sense to me. But I think there is something about it that will, will jar with a lot of people. And I imagine you have many people who say, actually, I don't agree with it. Can you tell me what you tell to those people who, you know, how do you prove that the authority gap is real? Well, first of all, actually, we should say, what, what is the authority gap and how do we prove it's real? Okay. The authority gap is the difference between how seriously we take women and how seriously we take men. So we're still more reluctant to accord authority to women than we are to men. And when I say authority, I mean both authority in terms of expertise and authority in terms of power and leadership. So we basically, we assume a man knows what he's talking about until he proves otherwise. For a woman, it's all too often the other way around. How do we prove it? Well, there are two really interesting ways, I think. The first one sounds a little anecdotal, but it's actually very scientific. Because suppose you are a woman and you're up for promotion against a male colleague and he gets it and you don't. You may suspect that bias was at play, but it's terribly hard to prove because you're different people. He may genuinely be better than you. So the secret is to talk to people who have lived as both a man and a woman and to see how their experiences differ because they're exactly the same person with the same ability and intelligence and experience and personality and body of work and all that. And if they're treated completely differently once people see them as the other gender, then that is pretty slam dunk proof, I think, of the existence of the authority gap because you have controlled for all the other variables and isolated the only one that matters, which is gender. So I tell the story in the book of two Stanford science professors who happened to transition in opposite directions at the same time, by coincidence. And they used to meet up to compare notes about once a week. And Ben Barres, who was a neuroscientist, he said, once he started living as a man, I've had the thought a million times, I'm just taken more seriously now, he said. He said, my work is taken more seriously. The same damned work, as he put it, is taken more seriously now that people see me as a man rather than a woman. And someone who didn't know his history was overheard at the back of one of his seminars saying, oh, Ben Barris gave a great seminar today, but then his work so much better than his sister's, i.e. his own. <laughs> Meanwhile, Joan Roughgarden, who is an evolutionary biologist, transitioned in the opposite direction. And she told me that when she was living as a youngish man, she felt like she was just on this conveyor belt to success. And her pay kept going up. She kept getting promoted. She was appointed to the university Senate committee. And once she changed gender, all that changed. And she said, to start with, I thought, well, if I'm going to live as a woman, I'm darn well going to be discriminated against like a woman. And then she said, well, the thrill of that has worn off, I can tell you. She said that, you know, she was constantly interrupted, underestimated, patronized, had her expertise challenged. These are all manifestations of the authority gap. She found it very hard to influence a meeting unless a man confirmed what she said. And what most surprised her, she said, was how she would be attacked personally. And people would say things to her like, well, you clearly haven't read the literature. She said, no one ever dared say that to me when they saw me as a man. And 
quite often trans women say that they had no idea of the extent of sexism until they started living as a woman. As a man, they just hadn't noticed it. You don't see it, do you? And her conclusion was that men are assumed to be competent until proven otherwise. Women are assumed to be incompetent until they prove otherwise. And actually, much bigger studies of trans men and women have found exactly this phenomenon. Trans men in particular say, oh, this is amazing. I just get so much more respect now. I'm taken so much more seriously now. I speak and people listen. It's very dramatic, the difference. There are also lots of academic studies proving the existence of the authority gap, certainly the manifestations of, of it, the sort of behavior that arises as a result of it. So, for instance, one randomized control trial sent CVs and application letters for a lab manager position to American science professors. And they were exactly identical CVs and applications, but they were randomly assigned male or female names. And the so-called male applicant was deemed by these professors to be significantly more competent, more hireable. They offered him a higher starting salary and they were keener to mentor him. And this was both male and female science professors, because it's not just men who do this. And then there was another study of U.S. Supreme Court proceedings. And you don't get much more authoritative than being a U.S. Supreme Court justice. But it found that although women make up only a third of the justices, they suffer two thirds of all interruptions. In other words, they're four times more likely to be interrupted than their male colleagues, 96% of the time by men. And the final study that I quite like to cite is about this phenomenon, which I'm sure you've come across and all your listeners will have done, which is if you're a woman, you make a point at a meeting, nobody takes a blind bit of notice, a man makes exactly the same point 10 minutes later, and it's treated like the second coming. You know, this is such a common phenomenon. Well, here's a study that proves this to be the case because, you know, we tend to beat ourselves up and think, oh, maybe I didn't make the point confidently enough or I wasn't eloquent or articulate enough. No, you were probably just too female. So in this study, they put actually a mixed gender group of people together, men and women together, ostensibly to decide a child custody case. And they deliberately chose this topic because it's actually quite female stereotyped. And they gave the group all sorts of information about the family concerned. But they gave a couple of individual members a piece of information that no one else had. When that information was introduced by a man, it was six times more likely to be used in the group's deliberations than when it was introduced by a woman. Six times more. That's how much harder it is for a woman to influence a group. Mm, interesting. So just hearing this summary again, he's obviously it makes my blood boil. What's your response to knowing that this authority gap is real? Do you get angry? Do you, how do you deal with that? Because in your field, it's particularly bad, isn't it? I read some statistics that you quote about how many women's books tend to be rejected a lot more by editors than men's books. And we all read articles that we read in newspapers by men we take a lot more seriously. How do you deal with that? Is there another way apart from just getting angry? Well, I mean, I do find it completely infuriating, which is why I've written the book. But I've also written the book to call it out because I just don't think we've been calling it out enough. And the trouble is that for any individual woman on any particular occasion, it's very hard to call it out because people will think you're being paranoid or difficult or angry or oversensitive or chippy. You know, these are all words that are used against women who do stand up for themselves. So I feel I'm trying to stand up for womankind here. 
You know, and I think if enough people read the book and start using the authority gap as a phrase and pointing it out when it happens, we will gradually learn to correct for our bias and behave a little better towards each other. That's what I really want us to do. I'm trying to make the point that it's not women who need fixing. It's how we all perceive women and react to women and interact with women that needs fixing. And the more we talk about it and the more we think about it, the better chance we have of fixing that. So it's actually quite constructive that it comes from anger in the first place. I like it, but you turned anger into something good, which is exactly what we all should be doing. One thing that stuck out to me in the book is this eternal question, whether or not you should be more like a man. Assuming, obviously, you know, this category of gender, it's a big debate whether they're but you can even say certain behaviors are more female or more male. But in your view, should you change in order to get more authority? Should you change your behavior or not? What's your view? It's so difficult, this. This is, this is a question I really wrestle with in the book. Because men will often say to women, well, it's all your fault. You know, if only the gender pay gap, for instance, it's all your fault. If you just negotiated for more money, you'd get it. We negotiate for more money and you don't. And therefore you're to blame. But actually, what studies show is that A, women do often negotiate for more money. In fact, it's sometimes they negotiate as much as men do. They're just not given it. And in fact, male hirers are five times more likely to say they don't want to work with a woman who negotiates than with a man who does, five times more. So that means that women actually get punished for negotiating. So it's actually quite dangerous for us to negotiate. So as I say before, we shouldn't be fixing the women we should be fixing our attitudes towards the women. Why are these male hirers saying they're prepared to work with a man who negotiates, but not with a woman who does? And it's the same with confidence. So people often say, oh, you know, you're not confident enough. You should go on an assertiveness training course. If only it were that simple, because the trouble is that if we don't act confidently and assertively enough as women, we're disrespected. No one takes us seriously. But if we do act as confidently and as, as assertively as men, if we lean in, people dislike us and they start using words about us like angry or aggressive or abrasive or strident or bossy, overbearing, bitchy, ball breaking, <laughs> scary, controlling, you name it. These are all adjectives that are never used of men who show exactly the same character traits. So there's this terrible double bind. We're either not confident enough and therefore disrespected, or we are confident enough and therefore disliked. And that's because we still harbor these ridiculously old-fashioned and out-of-date stereotypes that tell us that women ought to be kind and gentle and warm and nurturing and unthreatening, unassertive, unself-promoting, and that men ought to be confident and dominant and assertive and showing leadership. And when women start to display these so-called male characteristics, it makes us feel uncomfortable because they're going against stereotype. So there is one way through, but it's a very narrow path that we have to navigate compared with men. And that is to overlay a huge amount of warmth onto our personality. We have to try to exert warm authority in order to try to mitigate the dislike that we'll otherwise attract by being authoritative, by being competent, by being confident. And so that means that, you know, we smile a lot more. I, I notice 
since we started doing Zoom meetings and I can see myself talking, you know, I'm smiling most of the time because unconsciously I've learned that this is the way to try to mitigate the reaction I'll otherwise get from people for being confident and assertive. So we smile more, we, you know, we use humor to leaven the situation. We read the room very carefully. We have to be much more emotionally intelligent, try not to dent any male egos. And, and, and it's exhausting. And it's a burden that men just don't have to bear. It is. And it's almost, we have to have two skill sets mm. compared to if you're a man, you can get away with just being blunt, clear, authoritative. Well, we have to be authoritative, learn all that. And then we have to learn the charming side. And if we only have one skill set, it's not going to, it's not going to work. But I was very enthused because I think somewhere in your book, don't ask me where, because it was a while ago when I read it, somewhere, don't you write about the fact that it's actually changing or maybe I've just made this up out of all. I thought if in some countries, in some Scandinavian countries, the expectations of women's behaviours was changing. Was that in your book or elsewhere? Well, very slowly. So there is a thing called the implicit association test, which was devised by some Harvard psychologists. And it just measures how quickly and accurately you can match male and female nouns with home and work nouns. And of course, Generally, we tend to be quicker and more accurate when it's mother and ironing board than when it's sister and board table, <laughs> just because we're more used to it. So the extent of bias that that reveals has very slightly fallen over the last 10 or 15 years. But frankly, if it decreases at that glacial pace, it'll take us about a century to get it out of our brains. So I'm just asking us to try to speed up a bit. So if someone is listening to this, they are, let's say they're a woman. And they have young children, they want to progress their own career, but also they're responsible for 10 other women and 10 men in their teams. Is there something they can do as a line manager to try to hasten that change, at least in, in the environment that they're responsible for? Gosh, there's an enormous number of things they can do. I counted the other day, I've, I've put 140 suggestions in the last chapter for how we can narrow the authority gap. And I've talked about us as individuals, as partners, as parents, as colleagues, as employers. And I talk about teachers, the media, the government. You know, there is an enormous amount we can do, and it's sort of hard to know where to begin. But if you're talking particularly about mothers of young children, I think the most important thing is not to assume that they want to slack off once they've had children or that they're going to be less committed to their job, because that's what happens. We don't assume that fathers are going to be less committed once they have children, but we automatically assume that mothers are going to be. And if they do ask to work flexibly or they ask to work more from home or they want to go part time, we just take them off the career ladder. So we might meet their demands or their requests, but then they're not going to be promoted and their work isn't really going to be recognised anymore. And so the gender pay gap widens hugely after women have children. So that's one thing you can do is actually ask the parents, parents of both genders, how do you want to play it after you have children? Would you like to work less? Do you still feel as committed to your career? Is there a way we can help you combine working flexibly while still being as committed? Can we please judge you by your output and not by the number of hours you spend in the office? That's very important. I think having flexible working all the way through the company or the organization, right to the top, and particularly having men doing it as well as women, because if you've got senior men doing it, that gives a license to younger men becoming fathers to ask for it too, and they won't feel that they'll be either disapproved of or punished. And then you get a much more level playing field, because what happens at the moment 
is that it's very easy for organizations to discriminate against any woman of childbearing age, say between, I don't know, 20 and 45, thinking, oh, well, if I hire her, she's just going to go off and have babies and leave us in the lurch. But if men are just as likely to take a decent amount of leave when they have a baby, then frankly, you can't discriminate against everyone between 20 and 45, or you'd have no junior workers or middle ranking workers. So if men start to take proper parental leave and to work flexibly as well, once they have a family, that really levels the playing field for women. Mm, I couldn't, well, you're obviously speaking very much my language. The whole reason why I set up Leaders Plus is because I, well, with the fellowship programme, we want to support people to continue to progress their careers. And I really don't think there's a reason you should be forced to stand still in your career when you have children. But I think that there is something about that authority element. I do think that it's just not talked about enough. And I like that you've given it a name. It's the first time I've heard someone give it a name. I want to talk about these little fouls that you sometimes get, you know, exactly what you described, someone talking over you. And you couldn't walk up to them and say, well, actually, I think you're being sexist here because it's just so subtle, but you're just being interrupted all the time. And I want to share with you what I think the correct response in that situation is. And I would love you to to tell me what, what your thoughts are. So I would usually say that when when you are in a situation where someone is behaving this alpha male, and talking stereotypes here, but let's say that alpha male takes sits at the top of the table, takes up like literally the half of the table with their stuff, interrupts you all the time, sets the agenda, repeats your point, etc. Part of me wants to think, yeah, it would be good to have sit down and have a discussion. But also, I think it's almost like we should actually put boundaries up with our own nonverbal behavior. And actually, we should, you know, just keep talking when they are trying to interrupt us. We should somehow go down to their own level. And of course, you can have a proper sit down conversation and say, look, actually, you know, give you some feedback. This is the impact it's having, blah, blah, blah. But I also think we need to just nonverbally raise our eyebrows. Anyway, that. That's how, and I, I have worked with people like that. I really have. And I have done that and it has worked. But I'm interested, what, what is your view? You've obviously worked in a cutthroat type. I'm imagining it being like in the TV series. <laughs> you know, I might be wrong, but I, you've worked in that type of environment. How did you deal with it? Well, I generally just say, could you let me finish, please? If they try to interrupt. If you're really brave, you simply carry on talking. And it can be excruciatingly embarrassing if they're talking too, but just don't stop talking. <laughs> That's what Mary Beard told me she does. Otherwise, I I say, please let me finish. I haven't finished. But if you find either of those difficult, my advice is to try to recruit an ally. So someone else who's going to be at that meeting next time round. And if this alpha male starts interrupting you, your ally can say, hang on a minute. I was really interested in what Verena was saying there. Mm. Or if you make a point and no one takes any notice, 10 minutes later, the alpha male makes exactly the same point and tries to take credit for it. Your ally can say, oh, I'm so glad you agree with what Verena said earlier, (laughs) thereby calling him out in a slightly humorous way, but making it quite clear that it was noticed what he was doing. But it's much easier if you get someone else to do it. Otherwise, you often get labelled as the difficult one. Mm. merely for standing up for yourself. I mean, men men aren't seen as difficult or prickly or hypersensitive if they stand up for themselves, but women are. Mm. I mean, you told me earlier before before we were recording this that a husband of a friend of yours described me as angry because I stood up for myself. Well, exactly, exactly. And to an extent, I think, so what? You must be receiving lots of messages along those lines. But in a way, I feel there is no other way 
out. So we just have to accept that people are going to like us less if we are taking the authority that we deserve. And yes, we can have the norms that you say, but on the other hand, do we really care? There is a problem, which is, you know, you might just say, I don't care anymore. Frankly, at my age, I don't really care anymore. (laughs) But when you're trying to progress in your career, it does matter, unfortunately, because likability is a much more important factor for women than it is for men when it comes to hiring and promotion decisions, particularly if it's a man doing the hiring or the promoting. And so if you make yourself dislikable in his eyes, he's not going to hire or promote you. So unfortunately, it's not just a question of us growing a thicker skin and not caring. It does make a difference and it holds us back in our career if people don't like us. Interesting. So how do you get to the top of your career and stay likeable? You have to use all this warmth that I was talking about. It's the only way through. But I mean, I think it's a bit like women need the agility of of an Olympic gymnast on a balance beam, basically, to make it all the way through. Whereas men can just saunter along the floor, which is very unfair. Okay, and another question I wanted to explore in your book, you do discuss about what men can do as well. I know that there will be some men listening who are, you could be in those ally positions that you were you're describing. If someone is generally supportive, but hasn't seen this as an issue yet, you've described you can support someone by being an ally in that meeting. Is there anything else that you can do as a man to support this conversation? Yeah, I think really notice if you're doing any of this behavior yourself, because you might well be doing it without having noticed. You might well find that you interrupt women more than you interrupt men or that you listen to the men at a meeting. And then when a woman starts talking, you surreptitiously check your emails on your phone under the table, you know, and you might start noticing these patterns that you simply weren't aware of before because you weren't doing it consciously. But once you start noticing, you can become aware and stop doing it. You know, if you walk up to a man and a woman standing together, don't automatically address the man first, which I suspect most people do that sort of thing. But there are bigger things that you can do. So once you notice other people doing this sort of behavior to female colleagues, you can stand up for them. You can be the male ally in the room. I think it's really good to talk to your female colleagues and ask them, what sort of behavior have you come across at work and and what annoys you? And that will really open your eyes to what's going on. I think another thing you can do is make sure you don't take up disproportionate conversational time So many men, not all of them, but so many men just talk and talk and talk generally at the expense of the women around them. And again, they probably don't notice they're doing it, but it's actually quite selfish and it's pretty annoying for the women. And, you know, they can't just tell the men to shut up and give them a chance. But but men do that. They they indulge in what I call conversational man spreading, a lot of them. Uh, And that's very annoying. But you can also do specific things like if you're in the habit of going out for lunch with colleagues, you know, make sure you go out with a, with a woman sometimes, not just not just your male colleagues. Or more formally, if you're going to choose someone to mentor or sponsor, don't just choose someone who reminds you of what you were like when you were young and starting off in your career. Actively choose a woman rather than a man, ideally a woman of colour, because they get even less mentorship and sponsorship than white women do. Be aware of the studies that show that men, sorry, 70% of men will evaluate a man more highly than a woman for achieving exactly the same goals. And that rises to 75% of men in senior positions. So be aware that this bias is likely to creep in if you're in a position to hire or promote people and then try and correct for it. Correct for it by 
using very, very objective criteria when you're doing your hiring and your promoting and your evaluations, not going on hunch, not going on fit, definitely not going on confidence. Because as we've talked about earlier, it's so much harder for women to get this confidence thing right. You know, they're either underconfident or they're overconfident in your eyes. And the great mistake we often make is to confuse confidence with competence. And because men in general tend to present themselves as more confident than women do for all the reasons I've talked about, they're much more likely to self-promote and to tell everyone how wonderful they are and to boast about their achievements. And if we just take people at their word, we're going to hire or promote the overconfident, but sometimes not that competent man, rather than the either accurate or underconfident and maybe super competent woman. So is your advice to play as if you were confident? The trouble is you've got to be confident, otherwise you won't be taken seriously. You've just got to try to be warm at the same time. I think that's the only hope for women. Mm. And if you feel really unconfident inside, what people describe as the imposter syndrome, I mean, do you even agree with this term imposter syndrome? And if yes, how do you deal with it when you experience it? Yes, I do. And women are twice as likely to suffer from it than men. So what I say to my daughters is, if you're not feeling confident, at least act confident, look as if you're confident, even if you're trembling inside, because then people will treat you with more respect and that will make you feel more confident. And then you get a nice positive feedback loop. So I actually say to them, I say, shoulders back, tits out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you walk into a room, look as if you are physically confident. When you're sitting at a table or at a job interview, shoulders back, tits out, you know, You need to exude confidence, even if you're not feeling it inside. Yeah, we are taught to behave confident. and But I think it, it is, like you said earlier, we shouldn't just be trying to be confident. And the reason why we're not being taken seriously is because we are, we are these wallflowers. We have to not forget that there is a systemic issue here, as you're describing. And, but that's why I've slightly, I've got a bit of a problem with determined imposter syndrome, because it assumes it's the women who are at fault and they should just be a bit more confident but that's exactly what your book addresses. Well, exactly. And the trouble is that if you come across this behavior almost every day of your working life, which most women do, if you are constantly being interrupted and talked over, underestimated, patronized, disproportionately challenged, having your views ignored, every single instance of that is going to dent your confidence, isn't it? Mm. And it doesn't happen to men or hardly, unless, unless a man has a real bully as a, as a boss, it doesn't really happen to, to them. So it's not surprising that women are going to feel less confident. Very true. So do you recommend to your daughters to stay in a female-dominated environment? Or do you think every woman should try, like you have, to go into quite a male-dominated environment? Do you have any views on that? I think it depends hugely on what your interests are. I always wanted to be a journalist, and that was a pretty male-dominated environment when I started, so I just didn't really have the choice. Well, except I suppose I could have gone into magazine journalism, but I suppose my internal misogynist said... I don't want to be stereotyped as a sort of fluffy woman writing about makeup. <laughs> And I wanted to be taken seriously by men. So I did deliberately choose a more male arena. But then I was really interested in politics. So I didn't really have the choice there. And one of my daughters has always wanted to be an architect and now is. And that's also pretty male dominated. But female workplaces are on the whole much easier to work in. And all the research studies show that the more women there are in a room, the greater proportion of women there are in the room, the better men will behave. So they're much more likely to interrupt you, much less likely to affirm what you're saying if you're in a small minority in a room. Once women start to be in a majority, 
men behave better. So if this is something that really worries you, do work in a, a much more female organisation. I've just interviewed Vanessa Bonds. Um, she's written a book about influence. You might have heard it. And, and that's exactly if you are even just by being there, you're influencing people. Just this morning, my colleague and I, we went to visit a venue for our fellowship program. And uh, we don't know yet if we go for it, but we saw the Institute for Mechanical Engineers. I'm just so tempted to bring my group of parents with babies into that. And, you know, just to, just to change it, even just by hanging out there to change the conversation and the vibe of it. I'm very tempted to do radical, not massively radical, but to ch- shake things up a bit. And there's obviously, there are other challenges, you know, class and race that can impact how you're perceived is it the same sort of advice that you have to give for perhaps from a working class background who again get even a working class man who gets the same sort of being interrupted being all the time perceived as not that good is it the same dynamic is what I'm trying to say it is very similar and I could probably have written a book like this about race or about class but I'd be the wrong person to write those books because I'm white and I'm middle class It is easier to disguise your class background than it is to disguise your gender or your race. And so, you know, a lot of people who are brought up in a working class background, maybe they go to university, perhaps they change their accent, they start eating smashed avocado on sourdough and sort of join the middle class. So that's slightly easier. But it's true that if people still read you as working class, in other words, you know, because of your accent or or, or your sort of manner, Mm. you're going to be taken even less seriously. Basically, the further you are from the white male middle class default, the wider the authority gap is. And so for women of colour, it's even wider than it is for white women. So women in general of all races are twice as likely as men to say that they need to provide evidence of their competence and much more likely than men to say that people are surprised at their abilities. But women of colour are nearly twice as likely as white women to say those things. So it is much more difficult for women of colour in particular and women with disabilities as well. The authority gap's much wider. Not surprising, but sad, obviously. Yeah. Just wanted to ask a quick one about apologising. I always have an instinct to apologise. I probably have even done it on this podcast. <laughs> what is your view on the constant urge to apologise for things? And especially people listening to this, I know, will be having an urge to apologise for their children for having to run off and get their children for their children screaming in the background of of a podcast interview like we're doing now or something like that what's your view how does that affect your authority and should you do it or not I would apologize for both those things um, I mean I apologized to you earlier that my cat was yowling at the door and I needed to let in <laughs> my children aren't screaming around me because they're adult now but no I would apologize I, I think we should apologize for things that need a little bit of apology but don't apologize just for speaking. You know, there are so many women who say, sorry, but what I think is, and I think, why are they saying sorry? I want to know what you think. You don't have to apologize for taking up a bit of conversational space here. So I think unnecessary apology definitely chips away at women's authority. But I think it's perfectly all right to say, I'm I'm sorry, I've got to leave early because my children are are getting off school early today or something like that. That's fair enough. And conversational space, should you take up conversational space? Should you talk a lot, basically? Is that good for your authority as a woman or actually not? There's another double bind here. So quite often when it comes to women's evaluations at work, they're marked down because people say you don't contribute enough at meetings. In other words, you don't talk enough. On the other hand, women are also penalised for talking too much. And I'm actually, this is a podcast, I'm using air quotes deliberately 
because too much is often just talking for the same amount of time as men. And studies have shown that if a woman and a man talk for exactly the same amount of time, we will perceive the woman to have dominated the conversation. Because we're used to women speaking less, if they speak the same amount of time, we think they've talked more. And men who talk more than average are actually thought to be more competent. But unfortunately, I think you guessed it, women who talk more than average are deemed to be less competent. So we all have this little voice in the back of our mind, don't we, which is saying, don't talk too much, or God, have I, have I been talking too much? I even feel this when you're interviewing me, even though I'm supposed to be talking, because we know that we will be penalised if we talk too much. And so again, we have to get it exactly right. We mustn't talk too little or people won't listen to us and we won't influence a meeting. We mustn't talk too much because people will punish us for doing so. We have to get it exactly right and get that sweet spot. Mm. I agree. And I would also say, just if in doubt, do talk. Yeah, definitely. I think we also we also need to change the world a little bit. I, I completely agree with you. And we need to be, it's all about learning those, those skills of, of managing a hugely imperfect system mm. in order that we can be seen as authoritative. But also, we do need to slowly, slowly, slowly change our world so that our daughters have it very, very different. That's, yeah. I mean, you know, I don't think the onus should be on women to have to behave differently. It's not women's fault that we judge them with such double standards. It's all of our faults. It's the way we perceive women. It's not the women themselves that are at fault. And so, you know, I can try and give a bit of advice here and there, but I don't think women need to change. Mm-hmm. I think the world around them needs to change. Not at all. So in that spirit, I want to ask the last question, which is to think a bit about the practical implementation of, of your work. So there's obviously plenty, there's a whole chapter of practical implementation, which is great at the end of your book. But could you give us one thing that someone listening here could do to change things for other women in their organization? So most people are in leadership roles. And one thing, someone who's listening to this and is feeling maybe a bit disheartened and would just like to have one thing that they can try out to make sure they get seen as as the authority that they are within their environment? I think one thing that a senior woman can do is to get as many female employees as possible into a room, promise them anonymity, make sure there are no men in the room, and then let them unload about the sort of behaviour that they have come up against at work. Take notes of all this behaviour and take that to the senior management and say, this is the culture we've got at the moment in this organization. Let's undertake to change it. That would be the most useful thing a senior woman could do and show all the men, because the men just won't have noticed because they don't suffer from it. We've got to open their eyes. And then the men at the top have got to say, we're going to have zero tolerance of this from now on. We're not going to have men being overbearing and talking too much and interrupting women and not listening to them. We're going to call it out every time we see it happening. That's what senior people can do. For women themselves, I would advise speaking up early in a meeting. As soon as you have an idea, say it, put your hand up and say it, because that means A, you're going to be listened to more if you've made your point early, and B, there isn't the danger that a man makes the point that you were going to make, but because you didn't quite have the nerve, you didn't speak up, and then it's too late. Those are very practical things, very valuable advice. Thank you so much. If people want to find out more about you and your work, your book, where can they find out about it? If you go to theauthoritygap.com, 
or marianneseekart.com, but that means you have to be able to spell my name right. Both of them will take you to my website, which will tell you more about the book. And I'm also on Twitter at M-A-C-Cart and Instagram, M-A-C-Cart Writer. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Marianne. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed Marianne Seacart's reflections. I most certainly did. You can buy her book anywhere that you like if, if you are interested. Or obviously look her up on LinkedIn. Um, I also highly recommend following her on social media as she's doing some she's sharing some really insightful thoughts if this bit has been helpful in any way can you please share this with three people either um, share it directly via whatsapp or signal or anything like that you're using or share it on social media it really helps for us to increase the number of people that we can support with this podcast also any feedback i really love to to hear because it's quite a a lonely thing to do to sit here and I enjoy the conversation but I I would love to know what I need to do differently I would love to learn and yeah any help you can give to help us grow listener numbers I would love to get I've got some dream guests for example Brené Brown and I know that people like that will want to come on shows with even higher listener numbers so please help me by sharing it far and wide with people who you think could benefit and if you have young children and you want to have more of a face-to-face community of support or an online community of support then have a look at leavesplaster.uk forward slash fellowship i think that would be quite a nice way it's a nine month program both for people with primary school aged kids and very tiny kids and i think you you should really a lot of people get a lot out of it or we've got quite a few events coming up in the near future mainly online but some face-to-face as well so keep an eye out on the website or on the newsletter which is leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter thank you so much for listening and for sharing and all your feedback i really appreciate it and have a lovely rest of the week